Welcome to After Hours at the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. And we're here at the bookstore with our author, Jenny Shank, who has just released a collection of short stories, Mixed Company. We dig into quite a lot more in the broadcast interview. So if you didn't listen to that episode, you can have a listen. But I want to talk about Conan O'Brien. You threw this out rather cavalierly in the interview that uh, you had been offered an internship, albeit unpaid, with Conan O'Brien in New York. But because it was unpaid and because it's New York, you couldn't afford to to take it. How did that even come about? Um, I think I started out as a I always want I wanted to be a writer for quite a long time, but I started out um, wanting to write comedy. And I did write in college. I was in a sketch troupe, um, and I uh, like I did all my research projects were kind of like about cam- like I had an English and psychology double major. So my English projects I would be like the comedy in Jane Austen, and my psychology um, I would set up a research experiment to test the notion whether um, people think men are funnier than women or, or things like that. So I was always kind of oriented towards that. So when I so. Um, when they had some kind of career fair and there was a representative for Conan O'Brien's show there, I had like the resume that <laughs> I had done all these things um, about related to comedy writing. And so I really wanted to do that. But um, I think it's just hard. I think um, I, what, one thing I could have done, I think a lot of people do, is like you become a stand-up comic and then you make your own way but I didn't want to be a stand-up comic because that kind of made me really sick um I am not I don't feel that bad in front of audiences but I like to read something um not just be telling jokes so I always preferred to write more and so I let that go kind of but I still write satire and I just had something in there's a new collection from McSweeney's that came out this year called Dear McSweeney's so on the side I write these little short funny things and so I still get to do it a little bit but it never was the big thing where I went and wrote for um, a comedy show or something like that. Well, I have to say, I find many of your stories hilarious, like laugh out Good. loud, even though they're not, you know, <laughs> I'm intending the them to be funny, yeah. They were, I thought, so funny and so kind of subtle and clever humour, you know, so I, I really appreciated that. But I will move on from Conor Brown. I am actually a big Conor Brown fan. But this idea that you have to take an unpaid internship, which is in a place like New York, which is so expensive. I mean, do you have a sense then of people who then make it in the entertainment industry? Because that's going to just yeah. cut off opportunities I think, for so many people. I think actually, and this discussion has been going on in book publishing too, with regards to um, they want to make it more diverse. But if it's an unpaid internship in New York, that's going to be a bar to a whole wide variety of people. So I think that there's, at least in book publishing, I've heard that there's been programs put into place to support and pay people with diverse backgrounds to get a foot in the publishing industry. But I don't know that there's a program like that for for comedy or anything. (laughs) I think probably if you don't have enough money to support yourself in New York with no paycheck, which that's so weird. What are you, like girls from, (laughs) you have an allowance from your parents. But I think probably people that want to get into comedy in that situation just go home, wherever they're from, and get on a stage and start doing stand-up and try to to make it from the outside in. Yeah, I think with book publishing, it's, it's not just the internships, and this must be true of other entertainment things in New York, the entry level jobs. Like you can get an actual job, but you're gonna get 30, 35,000 a year, you know, which might come out to 15 or $18 an hour, 
what is that going to do if you have to your jobs in Manhattan? You know, even if you, you live somewhere cheaper, Brooklyn, which isn't cheap anymore, or Staten Island, but then you've got to commute in. It's just it's impossible mm -hmm. um, unless you already have means, and that's it's a real issue. And that yeah, that's who's influences the culture. The, yeah. yeah, it influences the culture that we get. The people who are able to put themselves in a position to uh, make the culture. Well, and even in you know a market like. Denver, it's so expensive to live here. I mean, I've been media has been talking about unpaid internships for years as well. Even if it's if you're in college and you're trying to get an internship, if you're not offering some type of paid internship, you're automatically excluding so many people because many kids have to have jobs as well. You know, the pay. And so if you're asking them to come and work for you for free, you know, and then that, of course, trickles up with who then is creating the culture and, and perpetuating the entire system. Yeah, I mean, that plays a little bit indirectly in, in, a, in a little bit different way is your character in the, the football story, signing for Lyman. Mm -hmm. You know, she needed a grant to work on her bail work. And when she didn't get it, she needed a job. And so she ends up having to tutor the lineman, you know, which ended up being a good thing. but. But you know, somebody in a different financial situation could have had the summer to work on their PhD without a job, you know, be, even if they didn't get a grant. So I think you know, so you know, you see this in all different parts of life, you know, mm -hmm. that the the advantages people have and don't have, and how that breaks down in in, um, in the academics and in entertainment and in publishing. It's kind of overwhelming when you really yeah, think about it. Yeah, I mean, I think it just, like, if you're somebody who's never won those grants, if you're a writer, say, uh, it takes you a long time or a long time to write your books, longer time than if you had been supported in that way. So it's either like you have to have a lot of money or be brilliant right out of the gates to get those people get supported with fellowships and things like that. Well, signing for linemen, that when you reference there, that's just one of the stories that references sports. And I love that that... In this, it has sports writing in it because when a new character is introduced, it has, what are they like, statistics? Or what do you call like that? The media guide. It's like from the media guide. A media guide about that, but it's done, you know, in the, in the style of a sports, but even if it's for a middle-aged woman who's, you know, grad student who's taken this ASL class or whatever. Or So I just thought that was really funny as a, as a component. So I know, Arson, you were a sports yeah. writer. Well, I wish the media guy would say something like, you know, one, one of them says, like, he's six foot, he's a wide receiver, maybe, and, you know, this and that, and then says, he's good with the ladies. <laughs> <He's> good. <laughs> I, I had a little fun with my media guy, because, like, when I tutored the football players, I came across a media guide, and it's this big book. I think they give it to the announcers so that, that when they're on air, they have something to say about them. But, um, you know, it's like, made Dave Campbell's super Texas team, like, really dry stuff. I'm like, put something fun in there. <laughs> well, there was one that was, like, doesn't like to talk around white people. Yeah. Well, which has obviously impacted his grade for participation in class. It's like, yeah, we need super duper honest media guides. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what I had fun with those little media guide sections. And I thought it was fun to do media guides on the grad students, too. So sports is a setting. You know, none, none of the stories are true, like play by play sports stories. There's one about two high school basketball players. It gets a little mm -hmm. play by play. But most of them like. We have a character in the community relations department at the Rockies. You have the signing for Lyman, where there's actually nothing that happens on the field. But sports as a setting for stories, why are you drawn to that? What do you like about it? Um, so I've been involved in sports my whole life. Like I grew up, I played basketball, softball. I was all city Denver, softball catcher. Yay. And um, <laughs> track. 
And then my whole family, like my cousin is the pitching coach for the Chicago Cubs. So it's like my whole family is very sporty. And then, um, so I just love sports. I also coached my daughter's basketball team, my son's baseball when they were little. Um, and I find that sports are an arena that bring lots of different kinds of people together. So that's, again, goes into the theme that I like to write about. So um, it seems like people can come from all walks of life. Um, and we were just talking about the internship thing. Like in sports, if someone's really awesome and they don't have any money, oftentimes like a, a team will subsidize that person to participate in their, in their team. Um, so it brings people from all over. And um, there's a lot of intensity of riding on it. People really care. Um, the team has to come together. There's a lot of people rooting for it or have a stake in it. So I like that for, for fiction. Um, and yeah, and I also was, I did an internship at the Colorado Rockies in the community relations department. So I had to put some of that atmosphere in there. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you, you, you know, <laughs> I thought I kind of found it funny as a baseball fan because the community relations department and the back office is dysfunctional. And as a fan, I see the team on the field as being dysfunctional. <laughs> so it was like it mirrored the overall organization mirrored what ends up on the field. Yeah, and well, it's interesting because the, the product is baseball, but there's all kinds of stuff going on around that, like, yeah, like the community relations department. I, I really loved that job because my job was to make people happy. Like, we donated tickets to charity groups, and I helped bring um, seriously ill children down on the field to meet the players and do good things like that. And then, you know, there's all kinds of economic issues riding on the team, like all the restaurants and everything surrounding it. And um, so it's way more than just baseball going on, even though the focus is baseball. Well, when you get into a big organization like that, you know, um, the, the baseball is, is almost a minor part in a weird way. Like you said, I mean, they're providing jobs for so many people mm -hmm. and there's all the food vendors. And when you look at it, the the baseball players are a tiny minority of what's yeah. really going on. I think that that, from what I observed, like working there all day, like I would go out and eat my lunch and watch the guys mowing the field because it was so beautiful, like the patterns they mowed in the grass. And you just watch the whole orchestration come into being, like the, the vendors arrive and the, the grass mowing people and the officials and then the crowd starts to come and the ticketing people. And so it's like a whole, I don't know, it's a symphony of things going on and then the baseball players arrive and, and play their game <laughs> yeah you're like set, it's like a theater you're setting the stage and that they just come on to it but you have yes. so much stuff other stuff going on you know in that story um the the narrator is is like you said you did you took the sick kids to the field to, to get autographs and there's a change in her during that st story where she's kind of shy with the players and then finally at the end she's had it and she just demands like one of the players signs you know, something for the kid. And what, what kind of response did you get from the real life Rockies? Were they, were they mostly very happy to do that stuff? Or were there some people that's like, I'm too focused to, to pay any attention to this? Yeah, they were mostly ha happy to do it. But I, my instructions were, you know, they're at work here, they're getting ready, they're taking batting practice. So don't bother them. You hang out here next to the dugout. And if they come near you say, will you sign this? Um, you don't try to impose yourself in their ritual. Um, but sometimes, well, so in that story, um, it grew out because I still, some of the kids that I brought down the field, I still remember, I still, I wonder, were they okay? Did they get better? 
Um, and so I made the protagonist of my story a woman who had survived childhood cancer because it was kind of my wish. It was my wish that they would grow up. And, but she kept it as a secret in her background. Um, and so the story is kind of her coming to terms with that. And um, yeah, she kind of explodes <laughs> when she realizes she's been holding herself back. Um, and she really wants to help the kids, That this one kid that really has a favorite player. And she's like, come on, stupid head, sign this ball. <laughs> I don't think I ever did that. <laughs> well, there's one of the stories deals with track. You said you ran track as well. And it starts with these two young girls. And it almost seems like the teacher is kind of engineering this rivalry between the two of them. And it's a game, boogie. I didn't know oh, what yeah. this, this was. Oh, yeah, this is a game we played in elementary school called Moonlight, Starlight, Boogie Won't Be Out Tonight. And you chant that rhyme as you skip in this dark gym. And there's one boogie at the other end of the gym. And they have to uh, be on their stomach. And then when they decide, they jump up and they, they touch as many of you can as you try to run back towards the wall that you had originally left. And uh, I remember being a first, second grader, and it was like so scary and so exciting and so fun. Um, and um, there was a girl, her name actually was Devanya. I took her beautiful name, because I, I, it's again a person I wonder what happened to her when she grew up. And she was the fastest runner. And so she was kind of like a, a rock star in our, in our gym class. Well, you make the connection from playing that game to actually being then a track star. Yeah, you know, I, that's again that a situation where I imagined her. I, I, what was my wish for her? Grow up, uh, be a be a track hero. <laughs> yeah, maybe when, if if Devanya ended up like that and was doing interviews, she might you know hark back to, <laughs> to that game, the, that game <laughs> as how it was. You know, one, one story we didn't get to in the radio interview was uh, the last one, the sit-in. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that story takes place during the Trump era, and it's a woman who's going to go to Cory Gardner's office to protest the Trump's health care, you know, trying to repeal the health care bill. And um, what's it like, you know, well, first writing in the Trump era and now writing in COVID? Has that, has that <laughs> changed how you write? And, and that story in particular I thought was interesting because we talked about this the, the story with the girl in the track and you jump forward and so that she's like in a college track meet. This story, you kind of jump forward from the sit-in in 2017 to talk about all the horrible Trump things that happened yeah. following that. Uh, it's hard to, so I'd never have written very politically in my fiction before, um, but it was just like so hard to avoid. And there was, you know, th this, you had to find the one issue that you feel really personally strongly about. And when I knew, when I saw these disabled people who were just like kind of fighting for their right to exist, to have health care, to not have their health care taken away, it just seemed so elemental that I thought I could write about it, hopefully, in a way that wasn't um, didactic or heavy handed or too much preaching to the choir. I tried to put in um, a Republican character in there that's kind of sympathetic, the young man. And that they come to, he and the narrator come to a kind of an understanding. Because I, I know even when I agree with the person's position, I know it's kind of cringy to, to read something where they're just <laughs> pontificating about something. So I tried to set it up in that milieu, that political milieu, because I think it's important what happened. And I was inspired by um, actual events where there were some disabled activists who did, who did a sit-in. And yes. And um, I was inspired by that because, you know, how hard that is that they were in wheelchairs and had all kinds of special medical needs and they were just occupying the office for days on end. 
Um, and so my character gets it, gets the location wrong because she's so busy taking care of her disabled son, which is like you're, you can't totally plug into the world when you have a child with disabilities. Um, and she ends up at the wrong office alone. And so I thought that adds a comic element. So I was trying to, I'm like, I want to write about politics, but I want to do all these things that don't make it like a bullhorn, like blasting at your face. So, okay, she gets it wrong, it's comedy. She has at least some kind of connection with the guy that's on the other side. Uh, I was trying to do all these things to not be this horrible like blurt at the end of the, <laughs> end of the book. And um, writing about COVID, um, I haven't, it hasn't seeped too much into my writing yet, but I think it would be great. I don't know if I'm the writer for this, but there's gotta be some kind of high school romance where a mistaken identity thing with the masks where they've only ever seen each other in masks, you know, like a Cyrano de Bergerac with masks in high school. Like, well, I love it. It's like or gotta Shakespeare. Be, There's always yeah. so much mistake. You can almost update a Shakespeare. I'm like, someone has to have fun with this because like the kids, it's so natural to them. They don't complain about the masks. They just go to school. They're wearing masks all day. Um, and you know, it's funny thinking about high school, you really cared about what you look like. There's someone cute you want to look at. You can't see half their face. So I just think that that would be a great, I'm, I'm sure it's going to happen. There's going to be some awesome YA writer that's going to write about this. Um, but that's one of the more cheerful, you know, depictions of COVID yeah. or fictional narratives coming out of COVID. We've come across a COVID narrative in a few books that we've read, and it's all about the fifth wave you know, of it. <laughs> fifth wave or the 15th wave. And it's like, oh my God, this is our future. I like the idea of a romance. I just read Tiffany Yannick's uh, Monster in the Middle. And at the end, there is, um, it comes into, it's in New York City during the COVID lockdown, and that's when this, these characters' romance sparks. So there's a positive aspect there, too. Well, there's a, a series that I think was on Amazon, and it was inspired by New York Times sort of love column. And it was all a, a, a series of little short vignettes about romance. And one of them was that during COVID, it's two people who meet in a train right before lockdown. And then they're desperately trying to reconnect. So I guess there's, there's romance to be had. Well, it's interesting because it provides those kind of obstacles that um, technology has taken away. You know, a lot of, like you are saying, Shakespeare. Um, a lot of the problems with Romeo and Juliet would be solved with text texting. Um, but this COVID, the masks, the being separated, throws up some of those interesting obstacles that are interesting for fiction writers to use to put up a tension between their, their potential lovers. Yeah, I, I always think about that. Fiction thrives on obstacles, and now everybody's carrying a cell phone. Like, help is literally a button away. Yes. You know, how does it, that, that would really affect mystery writers, and, you know, all sorts of people have to take in that into account. Well, I mean, I, I do think a lot of I don't know if it's a lot, but I, I can imagine that if you were doing some kind of YA, especially, and and communication or miscommunication or mystery was part of it, social media, every I mean, the mystery's gone. You know exactly who everybody is. They're posting selfies online. And you know about people that you don't even really know. Like, my daughter will talk about something she saw online. And I'm like, and do you know this kid? And she's like, no, I just Snapchat with him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it's fundamentally changed how we all communicate, but especially young people. So if you were going to have any story that really had a mystery or where did that person go? or to, So many of those mysteries don't even exist anymore. A book a couple of years ago by Danielle Kukafka that she said in the late 90s, and we, that was part of the reason she said it in the late 90s. She didn't want them to just be able to jump on their cell phones and 
the GPS tracking on the phone. There they are. End of story. The um, the novel that I'm working on right now is set between like the late 90s and more contemporary times, and um, it goes back and forth in chapters. And there's kind of a contrast between like the chapter where you have to call up the parents of the person you have a crush on and talk to them in order to get to the person you want to talk to, and then the next chapter where you're just texting constantly with people and all in, all in communication. So so my I have a story about this, which is embarrassing, but it's the podcast, so why not? So um, I'm the third, Arson Kashkashian the third, and so my dad is Arson. And when my mother would yell for me, she would call me Arse. <laughs> so I'm 15, and this girl calls the house looking for me. And my mother says, do you want big arse or little arse? <laughs> Needless to say, that romance didn't take off. That is hilarious. Well, there's a lot of hilarity in the book. I mean, there are so many of the stories that we didn't get to touch on. But there was one I do want to mention real quick. Casa del Rey, a, a kind of a funny look at uh, affordable housing or lack of in Boulder with this neighbor who moves in and this couple who are like, we got to move out of here, but can we afford it? Anyway, it's very funny. But there are so many great stories in this collection, Mixed Company by Jenny Shank, who has been our guest at the Radio Book Club after hours at the Radio Book Club, a podcast collaboration between KG and you and the Boulder Bookstore. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you so much for inviting me. After Hours at the Radio Book Club is a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arsene. Thank you, Maeve.